Good evening and welcome to the Catholic View. I'm Sheila Pirch. Thank you so much for being here with me. Today being a Thursday, we bring you our woman feature. We'll be taking a look at ending AIDS in women and children, as well as women with disabilities. That's what's coming up next in our woman feature later on in the broadcast. But first, do stay tuned as I'm about to bring you a quick look at some of the stories that made headlines in Africa and beyond. Listen to Radio Veritas, 576 AM, 48. And in your headlines this Thursday evening, Pope Francis sends video message to Armenians. South Sudan promotes patriotism. And UNICEF denounces a silent tragedy in Mediterranean and Italy. Good evening once again, I'm Sheila Pirish. We begin with Pope Francis. As he usually does before each international trip, the Pope sent a video message to the locals. Pope Francis told Armenians that he is going as a pilgrim and as a brother. He acknowledges the tragedy that their ancestors lived and says he feels both pain and admiration. The Pope gave them encouragement to continue working for reconciliation and not give up. He remembered the example of Noah, who did not give up in his efforts to find land after the flood. An example that is not accidental because tradition says the ark stopped at Mount Ararat, the symbol of Armenia. At least three people died in clashes between the Luo and Nandi community in the northwestern region of Kenya. Several people on both sides of the communities, in particular women, the elderly and children, have fled their homes for fear of further attacks. The clashes are due to cattle rustling, but the possibility that incidents of this kind can be fed as well as exploited for electoral purposes was denounced by Catholic bishops and other religious leaders of Kenya who blame politicians ahead of the 2017 elections for inciting hate speeches. About 425 people have taken refuge at the Africa Inland Church in Achego and are assisted by the Kenyan Red Cross. South Sudan's Community Empowerment for Progress organization, SEPO, is launching a nine-day campaign of activism to promote the spirit of patriotism among South Sudanese. SEPO Director Edmond Yakani says the initiative aims at encouraging citizens of South Sudan to share positive things about their country and to build peace. South Sudan's Catholic Radio Bakita reported. Yakani says that the campaign will give citizens a chance to interact and strengthen their knowledge on patriotism. The campaign starts next month. Sara Crowd, the UNICEF spokesperson, denounced that a silent tragedy has begun to emerge. A surplus number of migrants and refugees have started to flood the lesser known and lesser spoken parts of the central regions of the Mediterranean and Italy. This is a, a very worrying uh, number of children. We, we see that the statistics are, um, are growing for unaccompanied, uh, which is a new trend as well. Uh, when all eyes have been focused on Greece, 
This has unfolded in a somewhat silent tragedy in the central Mediterranean. In a new report, UNICEF has studied the migrant and refugee patterns of children making this daunting journey into Europe. Crow points out that 9 out of 10 children coming into Italian borders were not accompanied by an adult, therefore making them vulnerable to various forms of trafficking. No matter where they come from, they are entitled to protection and they are still children. Every country, those they leave, those they cross, and those in which they settle has a duty to protect these children. And this is often forgotten. These children need to be monitored, they need to be protected, and they need to be cared for at every step of the way. Crow weighs in on her concerns for this particular region due to the recent European treaty with Turkey. So far, the Mediterranean road has claimed 2,430 lives in just half of a year. And finally, according to data from the International Labour Organization, ILO, approximately 60 million people in the developing world are employed in the garment industry. The ILO has joined with the World Bank to improve working conditions for these people, most of whom are women. The Better Work program helps factories address areas such as working hours, child labour, collective bargaining, as well as occupational safety. Peter Foster reports on the program, which can be found in eight countries so far. Globally, the textiles, clothing, leather and footwear sector employs some 60 million people, many of them women. That's the equivalent of the population of Italy. The sector is characterised by long global supply chains where workers in factories in developing economies are vulnerable to poor working conditions. The International Labour Organisation has partnered with the International Finance Corporation part of the World Bank, to develop a unique path to improving the working lives of garment makers. That program is called Better Work. Dan Rees is the director of Better Work for the ILO, and he explains their approach. We're not just about measuring the problem. We're about trying to fix the problem. So I think what makes, uh, makes us different is that we invest an awful lot of effort within the factory in better human resource management systems and better systems in the factory. We invest in worker management cooperation. We actually um, enable workers to elect their own uh, representatives to drive change in the factories themselves. So a lot of our work is about understanding and really giving people the skills to drive sustainable improvement at the factory floor. Since commencing in 2006, Better Work operates in eight countries, including Bangladesh and Haiti. They maintain that their approach of improving working conditions it's not a burden or cost to factories and factory owners, but can actually help their bottom line. The good working conditions, when they improve, are actually better for business. There's a growing amount of evidence from the Better Work program that actually those factories with better working conditions are actually the most profitable. Those factories in which workers are happiest are the ones where they want to stay um, and, and are producing more productively. So, given that many of us like our affordable clothing, but also care about conditions for workers in this industry, how can we help? Dan Rees has some advice. Well, I think you know, what we see is that 
global concern of working conditions in the garment and other industries does drive change. So when consumers get concerned and they talk to their, the brands that they buy from, when they complain to their political representatives, then that can drive change in the industry. So we saw a huge amount of concern in the last three years or so after the collapse of Rana Plaza, that famous and tragic incident in Bangladesh. And what we've seen as a result of that is increased scrutiny um, on brands and in the supply chain, increased support for governments for change within the garment industry, and new initiatives coming in that are really driving change. So I think consumer concern, when it's voiced, has a direct impact on improvement in working conditions. Dan Rees, Director of Better Work for the ILO. Reporting from Geneva, this is Pete Foster. And those were some of the stories that made headlines in Africa and beyond. You are listening to Radio Veritas 576 AM, otherwise on 870 DSTV Audio Bouquet. And this is The Catholic View with me, Shayla Pirsch. Coming up next, we bring our women feature. Women on the African continent are generally treated as second-class citizens. They do not enjoy the same positions as men. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. You should aim to be successful, but not too successful. Otherwise, you will threaten the man. Some men refuse to invest in the education of their daughters because they say they will soon get married. Because I am female, I am expected to aspire to marriage. I'm expected to make my life choices, always keeping in mind that marriage is the most important. But why do we teach girls to aspire to marriage and we don't teach boys the same? We raise girls to see each other as competitors, not for jobs or for accomplishments, which I think can be a good thing, but for the attention of men. Feminist, a person who believes in the social, political and economic equality of the sexes. Women on the Forefront, a program dedicated to women who are making a difference. Welcome back to our Women Feature. Today we focus on ending AIDS in women and children. We also take a look at women with disabilities. Start Free, Stay Free, AIDS Free is a new plan adopted by the UN and its partners to accelerate the end of the AIDS epidemic. The announcement was made during a high-level meeting in the United Nations General Assembly in New York last week, focusing on wiping the disease out by 2030. Annie Lennox, International Goodwill Ambassador for the United Nations Programme on HIV-AIDS, UNAIDS, has been a tireless advocate for women as well as children affected by the pandemic. She launched the SING campaign in 2007, raising funds for treatment and care for women and children living with the virus and women's empowerment. Ms. Lennox began by explaining what the new campaign is about. There are three specific actions in Be Free. Start free, ensuring that the beginning of every child's life can be HIV free. This can be done. We're almost there. So that is absolutely 90%, 90% there. So we've only got a short way to go. Staying free means we must prevent the cycle of new infections by providing young women and girls with the information and tools they need to stay healthy and alive. So prevention, prevention, staying free from the virus. You don't want to become HIV positive. 
we need to avoid that at all costs. AIDS-free, to ensure that children who test HIV positive receive immediate access to treatment. This is really important, that we no longer have to wait until people are on death's door. We give them access to treatment and they stay on treatment and that will give them an opportunity to lead an AIDS-free life. When you were invited by Nelson Mandela to South Africa in 2003 to participate in an event, you were very moved by some of the words he said calling this epidemic a genocide. Do you remember that moment? Completely. I will never forget the moment. It is absolutely marked in my psyche. We were standing in Robben Island in the former exercise yard. Nelson Mandela was giving a speech in front of his former prison cell and the international media were there. And he said there is a genocide taking place in my country and the face of it are women and children. As a youngster, as a teenager, I had heard about apartheid and I had been outraged by apartheid. And I said, I will never go to this country, a country that prevents integration between races. To me, is fascistic and obscene. And to be standing on South African soil post-apartheid, listening to Mandela, who was standing in front of his former prison cell. I mean, the symbolism was so powerful. And he was saying, there's a genocide taking place and it's affecting women and children. And I said to myself, why didn't I know this? Why didn't I know this? Why doesn't the world know this? They still refer to the AIDS pandemic as something that happened in the 80s that was affecting LGTB population, intravenous drug users, sex workers, all true. But where was the representation? Where was the voice for millions of women and children? It was never represented very well. So as a woman and as a mother, no matter what color my skin, I felt I have a platform now. I can really possibly contribute and use the platform as a communicator that I have to try to amplify the voice and become an advocate and campaigner for this issue. Is that what you had in mind when you created Sing in 2007? Yes, it was my initiative because um, I sing, I've written songs and songs and music have been great communication tools, vehicles to send messaging to people and uh, the Sing campaign was my own initiative and really it was a small one because it was just me and at the time I wasn't a UNAIDS ambassador. Becoming a UNAIDS ambassador, it ramped up the profile, gave me the opportunity to actually speak more truth to power and for this I've been so grateful to Michel Sidibe for giving me that opportunity to be part of his collective team. The Sing campaign has donated money to grassroots organizations so that women could have treatment. Are you happy about the progress that's been realized in terms of women getting more and more access? We have seen tremendous improvement there. I mean, really off the chart. I think it's 84% women on treatment. I mean, PMTCT has been implemented. Babies do not need to be born with the virus. That's the very first sort of sacred moment of life, a child being delivered into the world. What could be more precious than that? And that child does not have to be born with this so-called deadly virus. It's not deadly. We know now that we can live with it, but no one wants to be born with HIV. And if we can prevent this by working with the mothers to help support, to educate, to learn about how they can live with the treatment and how to bring up their children in an informed way. There are so many levels to HIV and I think that the mother to child, the PMTCT aspect is simply one slice and it's the one that I have taken most interest in over these years. 
You've been committed to the cause for so long. You've given so much. Are there times when you felt, I can't do this anymore because HIV AIDS is still the biggest killer in the world? Here's the thing. Wherever I go, I have a few pieces of information in my head. And the first one is that HIV and AIDS is the leading cause of death for women of reproductive age. And the second one is that HIV and AIDS is the leading cause of death for adolescents in sub-Saharan Africa. And the fact is that people don't know this. People are not waking up every day thinking about this. The newspapers and magazines and the media in general are not focusing on this. They don't realize this. And it is a massive, massive issue to tackle. And this was the point, like when Mandela said genocide was taking place in his country, most of the people in the, in the country at the time were in denial about it. They knew what was going on, but they kind of said even the president of the country, the health minister at the time, was in total denial. So if we, we're not able to change minds, how can we change behavior? We must really understand the scale of the challenge and we must acknowledge it and we must be prepared to mobilize everything we have to make sure that those changes are put into effective place. Do you believe that we can end this epidemic in our generation? I think we absolutely can, but we must have the investment, we must have the political will, and last but not least, eventually we must have a vaccine. If we had a vaccine or a cure, we wouldn't be talking about it. That would be the end of AIDS. But um, we're all very hopeful. Thank you. Is there anything you'd like to add? I've been wearing the HIV positive T-shirt for 13 years. It's been a very helpful tool. It's not my invention. I learned, I, I, I copied Zaki Ahmad, who at the time was the most exemplary leader from Treatment Action Campaign. Zaki himself was HIV positive and he refused to take treatment until it became affordable to every citizen in South Africa. So he really risked his life for the cause. So this t-shirt that I wear that says HIV positive works in different ways because the virus is something invisible. And the stigma creates an invisibility as well. So whenever I wear it, it isn't a fashion statement. <laughs> it's actually about to bring the visibility of the issue forward. Whenever anybody takes my photograph, I don't care that they're taking a picture of me. I want them to look at the issue. And that has been a really, really helpful tool. And I'm really, really proud to wear it. Hey, hey. Women with disabilities face specific challenges which are not common to men with disabilities. That's according to Catalina de Vandes Aguilar, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. She was attending a conference focusing on women and girls with disabilities at the United Nations headquarters. Deganitz Perez has more. <laughs> A mix of greetings, conversations and laughs could be heard in conference room number 12 as disabled and non-disabled men and women were gathering to discuss the specific challenges faced by women and girls with disabilities. Women with disabilities face specific challenges that are not common to men with disabilities. Women and girls with disabilities are always discriminated in multiple ways. So they face discrimination on the basis of their sex, but they also face discrimination on the, because of their origin and because of many other reasons. That was Catalina de Vandes Aguilar, UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. 
Despite an increasing awareness of the difficulties encountered by disabled persons, the particular needs of women are often forgotten. Candace Cable was amongst the attendees of the event. An athlete and a human rights advocate, she described some of the everyday struggles she has to face as a disabled woman. For instance, having health care, you know, and being able to get up on the table to have a, a pap smear, a gynecologist work on me. Accessible tables don't exist. Many countries have signed the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, but some have not gone all the way to bring it into action, or have done so only partially. Ji Wang Yang from Korea described with the help of her translator the difficulties she experiences in rural Korea. In Korea, there's a tendency to concentrate the facilitation in the capital. And in the rural areas, there's not enough to facilitate her transportation and other everyday life. I think that people need to come forward and to realize that there's this problem we have. And once people realize that there's this problem, then there will be more change. But the fight to push forward the cause of these women and girls will not be easy, especially since 10 years after the convention was drafted, only one woman is part of the committee monitoring it. Sisterhood is powerful and can be used to bring both able-bodied as well as disabled women together in the fight for equal rights. That's according to Stephanie Ortoleva, who is the president of the U.S.-based advocacy group Women Enabled International. Ms. Ortoleva has been at the United Nations to participate in a meeting focused on the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. She says that she always had a difficult time getting women's organizations to consider disability issues to be of importance. Laura Jellyel asked her how this conference might lead to more inclusion and participation for women with disabilities. As I have said for many years, Women with disabilities are women too. There's really no reason why women with disabilities shouldn't be engaged. Um, in terms of my, my personal experience, as a child I had low vision, which degenerated um, into now I'm blind. Uh, I think it's important for me to take my advantages of my legal education to work with, and I do say with rather than for, work with my sisters around the world to advance all of our rights. You know, sisterhood is powerful, and if we all work together for our mutual rights, it will be a better world. So what would you say are some of the obstacles that you'll need to overcome? With this panel, we really want to hear from disabled women ourselves um, and not have others talking for us, but rather um, to know what the issues are that are of the most importance and what are the main issues and the strategies that we all think will advance our rights. In some places, it's been very successful where there's been good collaboration. Um, in India, for example, the women's movement and the women with disabilities movement have collaborated quite a bit. Um, in other places, that collaboration has not been as successful. Uh, some of the women's rights organizations uh, see the issues as two separate. Um, we're hoping to figure strategies to overcome all of those barriers. So what does success look like? How do you know when you're finished with your work? 
I mean, ultimate success is peace and safety for everyone and uh, full economic security. Short-term successes, I think, which are probably more realistic to think of, um, are a, just bringing a more cohesive women's with disabilities rights movement that works with the women's rights movement, but also that governments and UN mechanisms, agencies turn to for expertise. You know, so often when we talk about people with disabilities, we talk about protection. We don't talk about agency and empowerment and participation in making the decisions to design the program. This has been our woman feature for Catholic View. Hope you enjoyed the broadcast. Remember, should you wish to contact me, feel free to email me, Shayla at radioveritas.co.ca. I want to leave my footprints on the sands of time. Know there was something that and something that I left behind. When I leave this world, I'll leave no something to remember so they won't forget I was here I lived I loved I was here I did I've done everything that I wanted and it was more than I thought it would be I will leave my mark so And that's how we come to the end of today's broadcast of Catholic View, a program produced and presented by Shayla Pirsch for Radio Veritas. I'll be back again tomorrow evening at the same time. Until then, God bless you and ciao, ciao. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Shayla Pirsch.